The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health, the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Podcasting from Rockville, Maryland, home of the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health, a center of the Uniformed Services University. We are the nation's academic center for education, training, and research in disaster medicine and public health. This is Disaster Dialogues, Perspectives from the Field, a podcast where we meet with the disaster health experts to hear about their real-life disaster experiences. And now, here's your host and director of the National Center, Dr. Tom Kirsch. Welcome to the second episode of Disaster Dialogues, Perspectives from the Field. I'm Tom Kirsch, director of the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health. Today we are joined by Dr. Brian Flynn, Associate Director of Health Systems at the Center for the Study of Traumatic Stress and an adjunct professor of psychiatry at the Uniformed Services University. Thank you for joining us, Brian. Please introduce yourself and tell us about your current role. Thank you, Tom. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, I'm part of the senior leadership team at the Center for Studies of Traumatic Stress here at the Uniformed Services University. And uh, as uh, part of my role, uh, in that position, I obviously uh, sit on and contribute to the senior management team. Um, I don't do uh, as much research as some of the other people at the center, but I'm actively involved in information and educational development uh, uh, activities, uh, mentoring of some of the younger folks on the staff, and I'm particularly uh, interested in and involved in our consultation activities to other organizations, some of the stakeholders that we serve. Tell us a little bit about the Center for the Study of Traumatic Stress. What type of work do they do? Well, we, uh, we actually are 30 years old uh, this, this year. Uh, the center was founded in 1987 by Dr. Uh, Robert Ursano, who continues to uh, direct the center today. Uh, that strong leadership and continuity of leadership has really been an essential part of how the center has uh, developed. Essentially our activities are to mitigate the impact of trauma from a lot of different sources, war, disasters, terrorism, community violence, and public health threats. We work in uh, the areas of advancing science and academic knowledge. We work on developing and assessing interventions we're involved in a lot of development of educational resources and public information uh, resources. In our consultation activities, we're involved in bringing science and evidence to practice in real life situations that are presented by terrorism, disasters, war, public health emergencies, and trying to be of some very concrete practical help to our many partners. Because uh, of our long history, uh, we really have been uh, active and been instrumental in defining and advancing the fields of military and disaster psychiatry and mental health more broadly. I think one of the things that makes us unique uh, and makes it a pleasure to work at the center is that we're known nationally and internationally as an honest broker in this area. We don't have hidden agendas. We aren't trying to gather more power uh, control programs. When people come to us or we work with people, they know that what they're getting is 
good, experienced people based in science who are practically trying to give help and assistance. So that honest broker role, I think, is uh, one of the things that makes us stand out in the field. How did you become involved in the field of disaster mental health? I think I was very influenced in my early life by a number of uh, forces, uh, my father being one of them. He was a social worker, so getting into this field uh, came naturally to me. I was in high school when uh, Kennedy was president, when Kennedy was assassinated, and so I, it was a, a, an important developmental time for me. When I heard him say, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, that resonated for me. And I think having a father in public service, hearing that as an adolescent, it really helped shape my future. So for whatever reason, including those, in, in high school, I decided I wanted to be a psychologist. Uh, so I went to college, majored in, in psychology. And when I was in college, um, something happened that uh, influenced the whole rest of my career. Um, I joined a student training program uh, that's part of the U.S. Public Health Service. And I spent 31 years of my career eventually as a commissioned officer in the Public Health Service. But I got commissioned actually as an undergraduate in the inactive reserve and during the summers and in holiday vacations I went to work for the National Institute of Mental Health. So I got to be involved in activities that were gave me a preparation and an exposure that very few students have and that really influenced me. I then went on uh, to get a master's degree in clinical psychology at East Carolina University. And as part of that uh, clinical program, I did a clinical internship at a community mental health center that was uh, based in a hospital in a very rural area of North Carolina. A lot of the people that we saw at that community mental health center were very few poor people. Uh, from very rural, isolated counties, many of them minorities, and I began to think about really what could I do in that clinical hour that could really help them, and I realized how much of their lives were influenced by other factors that were outside the walls of the community mental health centers, outside my experience with these folks. They didn't have good housing, they didn't have good health care, they didn't have good jobs. And it really sensitized me for the first time to the importance of community mental health. That internship experience helped move me away from the clinical domain and expanded my interest in both community mental health and public health. How did you get involved in disaster work? So after I uh, completed my master's degree, I had to either activate or terminate my commission in the public health service. So I activated it. And for the next 11 years, I developed community mental health centers. Um, first uh, three years in Philadelphia at the National Institute of Mental Health Regional Office, and then eight years uh, in the New England states uh, where the office was based in, in Boston. Uh, in the meantime, I earned a doctorate in mental health administration, uh, which really has served me well. I'm very glad that I got an uh, advanced degree in clinical psychology, but also glad that I got one in administration. When I was working in Boston, a couple of serendipitous uh, events happened that 
<laughs> I didn't realize at the time, but were about to influence my career. Uh, the first was the blizzard of 1978. Uh, that was the first disaster I had ever been involved with. The government was closed. Uh, this was before my wife and I had kids. We wound up uh, being trapped in our house uh, uh, for over a week. You couldn't drive anywhere. It, uh, candidly, we had a great time. <laughs> we went cross-country skiing. We had uh, plenty of wood. Uh, we had some wine, and um, it was nice. I realized when the roads opened up and I went back to work that this was certainly not the case for many people. Uh, the National Institute of Mental Health had just implemented a crisis counseling disaster program and this was one of the first programs um, uh, after the blizzard that they, they implemented. So I worked on that program, uh, found it fascinating because again it was about community mental health. And I <clears throat> got my first training, first formal training in disaster mental health through a course developed by the NIMH Staff College in disaster mental health. I think that's probably the first in the country that was ever, ever developed. So in 1981, when President Reagan eliminated categorical grants to community mental health centers and put them into a block grant, there was no reason to have a system of regional offices. So those regional offices were closed. Uh, the civil servants were reassigned or terminated. And those of us who were commission officers uh, were reassigned. Uh, at about that same time, uh, the Marielle boat lift happened. Um, uh, there is a connection here that <laughs> may not be apparent, a but um, uh, during that boat lift, uh, Castro emptied his jails and his psychiatric hospitals into the United States. 125,000 people came uh, during the Marielle boat lift. And it wasn't too long into that process when we realized that there were a number of very severely mentally ill folks uh, in that population. So the U.S. Public Health Service became responsible for the treatment and management of that population. So at the time the regional offices were closing, that program was staffing up and I got reassigned to be chief psychologist for that program. Uh, I did that for a number of years, learned a great deal about it, and the disaster mental health program at NIMH was expanding at that point, so I, I went and joined that program and to oversimplify a complex history. I, I started working in the program, uh, then I ran the program, uh, and then as I moved up the organizational chart, I supervised the direction of that program. Uh, and that was the situation when I um, retired in 2002 from the uh, U.S. Public Health Service. I was the SAMHSA Emergency Coordinator and I directed a number of programs, but I always made sure that the disaster mental health program was uh, under my jurisdiction because that's, that, uh, that's where my passion was. Uh, so in 2002, I retired from uh, the, the Commission Corps as a Rear Admiral and Assistant Surgeon General. I served under David Satcher, who's an amazing Surgeon General. Uh, you may remember that he issued the first ever Surgeon General's report on mental health, so he was a real friend of, of mental health. And having done a lot of work with the Center for Traumatic Stress during my years at SAMHSA, it became a, a, 
a natural transition for me to look for opportunities to continue to work with the center. And so that was really when I became officially affiliated with the center um, and um, uh, have been involved and an associate director ever since. Oh, I guess one other thing I, I was just, uh, when I became part of uh, the center's leadership, um, I began writing, uh, began bringing my history to the, uh, to the center in terms of somebody who had been involved in direct disaster response, program design, and policy implementation. And I also, since then, have been representing the center in uh, national groups like the National Academy of Medicine, National Biodefense Science Board, etc. Are there specific disasters that stand out in your mind and taught you especially powerful lessons? There are. Uh, I think I learned something from every disaster that I've worked on and uh, I can tell you that no disasters were uh, ever the same. Uh, but a couple stand out in terms of particularly powerful ones for me and ones that either taught or reinforced important lessons. I guess the first one would be Hurricane Andrew in 1992. Uh, I sometimes get asked, what was the worst disaster you ever worked on? And uh, without hesitation, I usually say it was Hurricane Andrew. Um, it was a, a horrible disaster. Uh, it really wiped out miles and miles of South Florida. So it was a complicated, big disaster. Uh, if that wasn't bad enough, um, it was actually one of the more poorly managed disasters that I've ever worked on. Uh, FEMA had major organizational and implementation problems. There was a big public health uh, effort there uh, by the U.S. Public Health Service. It was the first time the Public Health Service had done anything like that. And that was a difficult uh, implementation. There was a lot of learning that took place there. And uh, the poor commissioner of mental health for the Florida Department of Mental Health had started his job just a week before uh, that. So this was kind of a perfect storm of uh, organizational and management problems. Uh, and I will say uh, candidly, uh, that it was the first and I believe only one where I became a psychological casualty. Uh, I was, uh, had, had spent, I had spent a lot of years developing good relationships with FEMA and their workers were having huge stress problems and they turned to me. Uh, but that really wasn't why I was there and yet psychologically I was not going to turn my back on this organization and the individuals that I was very close to and would work many disasters with. The Public Health Service expected me appropriately to be part of that team uh, and so I was pulled in that direction and uh, one of my main jobs was to assist the state of Florida in developing and organizing a response, so I was pulled in that direction. We had very few resources in the office at this, at this point. I felt like I was pulled in so many different ways that I just wasn't able to do the kind of job uh, that I was used to doing and that I prided myself in doing. So I really became extraordinarily stressed to the point where it really, uh, I believe, impeded my function. I wasn't able to sleep. I started developing um, 
gastrointestinal problems. I couldn't concentrate. Uh, I had to write a lot of things. I wasn't writing well. Uh, and um, I was a casualty. Um, and uh, so I uh, got uh, some added resources. I got some medication so I could sleep. Uh, which didn't make the problems go away, but it, it's amazing what a couple of good nights sleep uh, can, can do to you when you're in a high-stress uh, situation. Uh, <coughs> I mention this because uh, there are a couple of important lessons uh, in there. I think one is those of us in mental health and disaster mental health who talk about the need for people to get services when they need them better be willing, willing to do it ourselves uh, when, uh, when this happens to us. Uh, I can remember after one particularly difficult and lengthy deployment there, I literally, when I got back to Baltimore, when I stepped off the plane, I had arranged to go directly to a therapist's office. It was a therapist who had been part of the National Disaster Medical System team in Florida, so she knew what was going on down there. I didn't have to do a lot of orientation to what my job was, was like. And she was extraordinarily helpful to me. Um, and I even asked her when I left her office if she would phone my wife and let her know the kind of shape that I was in because I really didn't uh, want my wife to, to, to see me as fragile as I was at that uh, point. So the lesson, uh, uh, the message I'm trying to make is, uh, is that, you know, even those of us who have done this a lot are not immune to being stressed uh, in very significant ways by these. And if we're going to encourage other people to get appropriate kind of care and intervention after this, I think it's only right that we be willing to do it ourselves. The other, uh, another uh, disaster that stands out for me is the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. Uh, I tell people that for me that was the most powerful disaster. Andrew might have been the worst, but this was the most powerful. Uh, and it was powerful, I think, because of a couple reasons. Uh, first, it was the first big human-caused disaster that I had ever been involved with. Uh, and that makes the event different. When you think that somebody actually did this intentionally, it adds a whole other psychological dimension for both primary victims and, and workers. Uh, I had seen disaster devastation that was worse, certainly in a Andrew. Uh, went up in a helicopter in Andrew, and as far as the eye could see, there was just flatness, devastation. Buildings were knocked down, train cars were off the, off the tracks. Much more widespread and dramatic damage. But I can tell you that the first time I stood in front of the Murrah building there, uh, this wave of rage came over me. Um, that I had never felt before working on a disaster. And I kept repeating to myself, somebody did this on purpose. Somebody actually caused this to happen. I had a hard time wrapping my head around that. So it, it made it different. I think there's also, as a federal worker, there was some psychological identification with what happened there. When I looked inside that building, I saw desks that looked like mine. I saw offices that looked the same gray desks, the same chairs um, that looked like mine. And I'll, I'll never forget 
um, being in front of the building and uh, someone was uh, walking up to me very rapidly and I recognized him as somebody, a uh, FEMA employee that I knew from central office uh, here in Washington who was part of the, the body recovery uh, activity there. And this was not somebody who normally went out to disasters, so this was new, new to him also. And um, he came up to me and uh, he had that thousand yard stare in his eyes and uh, he said, Brian, they look just like us. They look just like us. Uh, and he had been more directly exposed to some of the, the, the remains uh, there. And so for him, that, that psychological identification was huge. So I think that was part of it. On the positive side, I have never worked in a disaster where there was more collaboration, cooperation, support uh, among and for those of us who were working there. Uh, the bureaucratic walls came down, people did whatever needed to be done, people cooperated, they reduced uh, bureaucratic barriers. The community uh, welcomed and accepted us in ways that I had never experienced. It was hard uh, to go into a restaurant uh, if you had a jacket or a shirt that identified you as part of the response and pay for a meal um, or uh, pay to, to have your laundry done. Uh, there, it was it was an amazing uh, experience in terms of community support. Um, years and years ago, there was a there was an article written by an anthropologist uh, named Tom Forrest, and he wrote an article about people who work in disasters uh, temporarily, and he called it the transient utopian community. And I always remember that, and I thought that's a very good way of identifying this. It is transient; it comes and goes. It is utopia in some ways. People are working for a common goal that's a noble one, uh, and then the community disperses before the other <laughs> problems that always occur in utopian communities come up. So it, it reminded me of that, and you know, I'm, I'm not naive. I know that that wasn't going to last. But one of the lessons for me, and I still, still is powerful to this day for me, is that I, I did, experience for at least a, a, a short time uh, that there are ways in this world that we can live better together. Uh, there are ways as communities, as cities, as professional cultures that we can do better than we usually do. And I, I know it, I saw it, I lived it, and, and it was a, a powerful uh, experience. Uh, I guess the final uh, situation I would share was um, in 1999, I was, had the honor of being invited to accompany Vice President Mrs. Gore uh, to Littleton, Colorado, uh, five days after the shootings at Columbine. Um, I was asked to consult with them on the flight going out, uh, to attend the memorial service with them, and um, to meet with the families of those who had been killed. Um, it was a full 24 hours uh, with them, and it was uh, one of the most memorable 24 hours um, in my life. The meeting with the families uh, there was something I had never done before, never done anything even remotely like that. Uh, and um, just to set the scene, there, there were 15 people killed. Uh, in that situation, including the two perpetrators. Now, their families were not there. 
uh, <clears throat> it was a good thing probably that they weren't there, but if you can get some distance on it, when you think about family tragedy, theirs is also a family tragedy. So there were the, uh, the primary relatives of the uh, 13 remaining uh, people, one teacher and the rest students. And there were um, uh, there was mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, grandmothers, and grandfathers. They're primary relatives. In my mind's eye, uh, when I tried to envision what this was going to be like, the group turned out to be much larger than I thought. I thought 13 people, this is going to be a small, intimate group. There were over 100 people there. And the message in that is even in a relatively small event like that, the rings of bereavement go out very far and very fast. This wasn't teachers, this wasn't friends, but there were 100 people in that, over 100 people in that room. <coughs> the other lesson in that for me was there's no right way to grieve. <laughs> uh, I, I talked, met with every person in that room, and their emotionality um, uh, ran the gamut from people who were very controlled, uh, unemotional, to those who were so emotional they literally could not speak and simply fell into my arms uh, and cried. Um, and this was five days after. And, um, you know, it reminded me that people um, grieve in many different kinds of ways, and we need to value that, honor that, respect that, not try to change that and say, oh, this is, you know, this is day five, you should be angry or you should be in denial. They are where they ought to be in that situation, and we better not uh, monkey with that uh, unless we have a long-term ongoing relationship with those folks. Uh, we need to support them where they are and, and, and honor and respect where they are. The other thing that surprised me uh, uh, was how many people said to me something like, please don't let them forget. Uh, and that was not something I had expected. And it wasn't just a few people, it was a lot of people that said that. And um, candidly, I didn't know how to respond uh, to that. Uh, but I said I won't. Um, and um, that has stuck with me. I've always been passionate about my work in disaster mental health, but it became even more personal that day. Um, you don't look into the eyes of a mother who's lost their son or their daughter and asks you not to let the world forget about that and to tell her that you will do that. You don't walk away from that, I think. Um, uh, I, I intend to work in the field of disaster mental health as long as I can. And part of the motivation is honoring what I feel is very personal commitment to those, those families that I would do my best not to let people forget. This kind of work uh, can't help but uh, impact one uh, on a professional and, and personal basis. And certainly uh, those uh, three activities have had a big impact on my life and continue to have. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Disaster Dialogues, Perspectives from the Field. And thank you very much, Dr. Flynn, for taking the time to speak with us. Your insights were amazing. Join us next time as we continue our discussions with Dr. Flynn. Thanks for listening to Disaster Dialogues, Perspectives from the Field. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, www.usuhs.edu forward slash ncdmph. 
or just search for NCDMPH. Also, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at NCDMPH. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. This has been an NCDMPH USU production. Join us next time for another edition of Disaster Dialogues Perspectives from the Field.